0: Isaiah, but to get there, part of what we have to do is set the historical background, and so I want to spend today and probably part of next week doing some background stuff. This, this is just the history of uh, the period. Isaiah is one of several, one of five 8th century B.C. prophets. Uh, you should probably read them together. Hosea and Amos were prophets to the northern kingdom. And so was Jonah. Uh, Jonah uh, shows up in the stories of 2 Kings in, of all things in his ministry to, to a, a pagan Israelite king. <laughs> um, just a strange thing. I charted this several years ago. How many references are there to prophets in the books of Kings? Prophets to Judah. And how many references to prophets to the northern kingdom? The northern kingdom gets the... Ba- the, the uh, uh, the most of the prophets, and I, I, it's kind of odd. The northern kingdom, every king was wicked. There, there wasn't a good king in the bunch. Um, there, there were good kings in the political sense, but not a righteous king in the bunch. The southern kingdom has um, I, really more than you than you imagine uh, good kings, uh, but they don't have as much. Uh, uh, prophetic leadership. So Hosea, Amos, and Jonah. Uh, Hosea and Jonah early in the second, in the eighth century BC, so seven hundred one to eight hundred. Uh, and Amos later. He he's coming down toward the time when the southern kingdom is going to fall. I'm sorry, the northern kingdom is going to fall about seven twenty two BC. In the south, you have Isaiah and Micah. And Micah actually probably. It's not clear which way it's going. Uh, one of the two prophets quotes the other one. They're contemporaries, and so it's not, sh- it's not certain whether Micah quotes Isaiah or Isaiah quotes Micah. They're both quoting God, so it, it all works out. Uh, there's, no, there's no copyright problem involved. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, these, are, these five prophets are significant, and we would do well to think about them together in that sense. Um, but we're going to do a real quick run-through the early kings from Solomon on. Uh, there are three books that I would recommend if you're interested in this, three books that will give you a good deal of this information. The first one I've given is um, a historical survey of the Old Testament by Eugene Merrill. This, this book is, is re- it's, it's relatively brief, and it gives you the history of Israel until he comes to the point where a book is written, then he stops and, and talks about the book. And it's really handy in that regard because often as we read these books, we don't really know the historical background of them, and so it's hard to figure out what they're even talking about. But Dr. Merrill gave this background in his book. Um, then William Dumbrell is a is an Australian scholar. Wrote a book, The Faith of Israel, a Theological Survey of the Old Testament. Dumbrell, I have used his book with undergraduates, with with graduate students, and doctoral students, and they all come away saying, This is a fine book. It's really an excellent book. Um, This is a, every chapter is relatively brief, and you you can read through it um, in a a matter of, of half hour, 45 minutes. I'm a slow reader, and I can do that. So um, my average, probably average reading speed is about 200 words a minute, so that's very, very slow. Most people can talk that, that speed. So, uh, um, so Dumbrel is a really good book. I, I, I cannot more highly uh, recommend it. His specialty is to show you how each part of a book it works to, to bring the message together. Is marvelous in that regard, and then another book by Merrill, um, "A Kingdom of Priests," is his uh, kind of his life's work. Dr. Merrill was a historian by discipline, and and uh, uh, this is his Old Testament history. It's it's a history of Old Testament Israel. I'm always astonished at at the insight he's able to derive from what I would consider. Um, evidence in, in the text that I wouldn't have even thought of as historical evidence, but he's, he's really excellent at this. So if you're interested in looking more at, understanding more of the Old Testament and thinking about its historical background, these three books, all of them would be worthwhile. I'd most highly recommend the first two, um, the Historical Survey of the Old Testament and then uh, Dumbrell when we start with Solomon in, in, in 2 Chronicles, uh, if you were going to look for the life of David, you would look in, for, in 1 and 2 Samuel. And then the early chapters of 1 Kings. Uh, it's in 1 Kings that, Sam, that David dies. Okay? So far? If you're looking for Solomon, you're going to look in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Uh, for this presentation, I'm, I'm uh, camping out on the book of Chronicles first because it doesn't get much attention. Uh, when was the last time you read through Chronicles? About the only verse you know is, is um, if my people yeah, call on my name yeah, that's not much else that you know from Chronicles. One of my life verses comes from Chronicles. First Chronicles 26-18 At the Parbar on the west there were four at the road and two at the Parbar. It's been a guiding light a star by which I have charted my course all these years, but uh, Chronicles is hard to read, especially First Chronicles, because you have all these lists of names of Levites and oh, good, nine chapters of genealogies at the beginning. It's just painful at times, but um, it has some of the most significant material that we can talk about with these with these kings. So after Solomon, uh, you know that Solomon in the latter years of his life turned away from the Lord and the Lord took the northern tribes away from Solomon from the house of David and so you have then the division of the kingdom this happened in 931 BC and from that point from 931 until 722 the northern kingdom has nothing but wicked kings um, the first one was actually offered a permanent kingdom Jeroboam I was offered a permanent kingdom but he re- he um, uh, rejected the word of God that the place for worship should be Jerusalem, and that they should not make any images of himself, so uh, he made an image of god he, he was not leading Israel to fo- follow false gods he was he but he violated the commandment not to make an image of god and so um, uh, Jeroboam lost that possibility of having a permanent kingdom and there are the thing is just chaotic almost and we'll not talk about that Chronicles doesn't. Chronicles brings in the northern kingdom only where it's necessary for understanding Judah and the continuation of the house of David. So um, uh, in, in, in looking at, by the way first Chronicles goes through the life of David second Chronicles begins with Solomon and then goes to the end of the of the southern kingdom's period. So Yes? Jim, as uh, uh, a sort of aside, but if I don't ask you now, I may never ask you, what would you say, in summary, is the most important reason for all these lists of names that nobody really wants to read? <laughs> what is the importance of those? If, if, if it were your genealogy, you'd be fascinated. That's uh-huh. right. So it was for Israel. Second, Chronicles is written for the post-exilic generation. Part of what's going on, you should read Chronicles with Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, So you have genealogies in both. You have a list of returnees and so on. Uh, The problem is who legitimately is part of all Israel? And a, a key theme in Chronicles is all Israel. Uh, so you're, you're, you're after the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, 586 B.C. Chronicles is probably written sometime around maybe 400 AD, B.C., A.D., B.C. Um, and uh, it's, it's critical for them to understand what it means to be the people of God after all that's happened in their history. So who are the people of God? And that's what the genealogies are about. Solomon is followed by Rehoboam. Rehoboam abandoned his father's wisdom, and uh, uh, in fact, his father abandoned wisdom. Uh, So Rehoboam even abandoned the wisdom of Solomon and lost the northern tribes. Uh, He is a man who is, and we'll have some thematic statements um, that arise. I think this comes from Dumbrel. Uh, Rehoboam is a pattern of repentance and resistance. Rehoboam violates the will of the Lord then he repents but then he resists that's 2nd Chronicles 10-12 to in 2nd Chronicles 13-16 to uh, you have a series of kings in whom we learn the benefits of trust in God and then finally in 17-1 to 22-9 unholy alliances result in compromise and disaster we're not going to go through all of this we're going to pick out certain portions of all that to talk about as we go. but we need to think about the world in which Isaiah is ministering, the world in which these kings are living and and there are three kingdoms that you need to be aware of one is Assyria. Assyria we'll talk about more as we go as we go and I'll give you some graphics on this but the the term Assyria was sometimes applied to those territories which were subject to the control of, of its kings. Dwelling at Nineveh, the famous city Nineveh, uh, Ashur, and Kala, uh, you have not heard perhaps of these other two cities, but they were early um, capitals of the of the what turns out to be the tribe of the Assyrians. Um, they were a small tribal group, extremely powerful, but since they were small, they couldn't hold their their empire together by um, uh, force of arms, so they did it by terror. Uh, they would approach a city, and if it re- if it resisted, they would besiege it. Uh, was in the British Museum some years ago, and on my birthday, 1995, I guess it was. Jen met me in you're in uh, London on the way home from India, and um, um, I got to spend my birthday in the British Museum. They have reliefs there. What a day! Oh man, uh, I uh, there are reliefs there that come from the palaces of of the kings of Assyria. One of the series of reliefs is a battle that was fought at one of the great cities, one of the fortified cities of Judah, called Lachish, and uh, they they show the course of the of the battle. One of the, one of the things they did was when they captured the city, they would take the elders of the city. Flay them alive, decapitate them, and impale their bodies on the wall. Uh, so, so vicious was the Assyrian army that when it approached a city, often the city would simply capitulate immediately. It was better to capitulate and be ruled by a foreign nation than to um, uh, than to fight and be destroyed. Uh, so. Um, at the height of its power in the 8th and 7th centuries BC. So the period that we're talking about. These te- uh, territories included Media, so- uh, South Anatolia, Cilicia, Syria, Palestine, e- Arabia, Egypt, Elam, and Babylonia. Now some of that makes sense to some of you, but not all of it. So here's a map. Here is northern Iraq with the city of Nineveh at the crossroads of these of these highways, Iran and um, Syria. Um, so, so you can see it in terms of modern geography. here is the empire itself. This is Anatolia, here is Cilicia, Babylonia, and so on. So this whole region finally came to be under the dominion of the Assyrians. Uh, they even went down and, and captured conquered Egypt, a rare thing in the ancient Near East Egypt thought that they, kind of like the United States, we have believed in the past that our oceans protect us. <laughs> Not anymore. Uh, and the Egyptians thought that the desert protected them, and they were absolutely safe. But the, but the uh, Assyrians came down and took the city, took the, uh, the country itself. So this is the, the empire of the Assyrians. In the 9th and 8th centuries B.C., um, the Assyrians are mentioned in the Bible 150 times two-thirds of them in second kings and isaiah so it's going to be important for us to have a sense of what assyria is as we're working through the book of isaiah in the days to come and two kings are critical tiglath pileser the third well it is a funny name i thought maybe you were laughing for a different reason yeah. my on my doctoral comprehensive exam uh, i was doing really well and i thought i'm going to pass this thing this this is cool. That's the last thing you do before your dissertation. So, I thought I'm going to make it here. And I was working in Isaiah seven and te- on the exam, and the the uh, ch- the chairman of the PhD studies committee in the, in those days was a guy named Harold Honer, and he he said, uh, Jim, what year was was the event? Did the event happen in Isaiah seven? And I thought, how do I know what year and I said, 8th century B.C. He said, that's right, but what year? You went on. And finally, I got the year. And they said, who was king of Assyria at the time? And I thought, oh, you've got to be kidding. Right. <laughs> and so I named this one first and that one second. And that was correct. <laughs> Tiglath. So I thought maybe you were laughing because of that story, but not so. <laughs> so Tiglath-Pileser III. These two guys. Well, I think just called him Tig. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, they didn't. They called him Pul yeah. No, that's literally. In, in the Bible, you will find him referred to as pool or PULU, P-U-L or P-U-L-U. So, um, um, yeah, Do- Dr. Honer Dr. said, I thought I was going to have to tell you to pull the answer out. So, <laughs> yes. As, as an aside, you know, the announcement that Ralph made for us uh, on this series documents history and how it, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Bible... It's, it's a credibility yeah. Yeah. so we can, we can talk about facts right. about this stuff so, yeah. worth- so uh, Shalmaneser of the 5th is the guy who uh, he was the king who um, uh, destroyed Samaria in 722 BC so um, it's a, he, these are important names that we will probably come up, refer to in the future so wanted to have at least some introduction to them um, there's another group uh, the Ar- Arameans, they are often called the Syrians in scripture in your translations. Uh, Syria is kind of a late term, it's anachronistic in a sense. These Aramaic speaking people um, dominated throughout the area west, uh, the, the western Mesopotamia, north of Israel. And so here's a map, Here, down here is Israel, and you come up, this is actually Lebanon today, But the Arameans lived in this whole region, had little city-states and tribal groups. (coughs) They were kind of a a federation of tribes and uh, 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 interacted a lot with Israel. And immediately, one of the more important passages all of us think is important is Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, And the Arameans are going to be important for that. So I mentioned them. Here is kind of a just general uh, regional uh, indication of where the Arameans were. So you have Phoenicia over here with Tyre and Sidon, and um, uh, this is Lebanon today. It's all Syria in the in in our day, and then Israel to the south. Um, they're mentioned from First Kings um, 15 all the way to First Second uh, Kings 13, one way or another. There's Ben-Hadad in the 9th century, Elisha and the king of Aram in chapter 6, chapter 7, the Aramean siege of Samaria, and so on. Uh, These guys are all all around the text, and so you need to be familiar at least with who the Arameans were. Aramaic is a language very close to Hebrew, but if you knew Hebrew, you wouldn't be able to speak Aramaic. Uh, When there is a siege at Jerusalem in Isaiah 36 and 37, um, the uh, the representative of the Assyrian king is speaking to the people in Hebrew, and the leaders of Jerusalem say to him, "Don't speak to us in in uh, Hebrew. Speak in Aramaic. We understand the language." But they really didn't want the people on the wall to hear what the guy was saying. And he goes, "No, they need to hear what's what what's going to happen to them." <clears throat> what he didn't know was what was going to happen to them to the to the Assyrians or the Assyrians. But Aramaic is close. If you know Hebrew, you can't understand Aramaic, but you can learn it relatively easily. Yes, sir? Jim, after the descendants of these people, would it be correct to say that the descendants of the Arameans, the Assyrians, and the descendants of the Assyrians, would they be the Persians or the Arabs? No, neither. Uh, neither. Uh, the Kurds now live in the area where the the Assyrians were. But I don't know who precisely would be the descendants of the Assyrians in our day. Um, Armenian? No, no. Uh, Armenia is a different language group altogether, so I don't know. Um, so is the name Assyria and the name Syria? Is that just a coincidence? They're, compl- they're coincidental. Um, if you hear somebody from Syria pronouncing the name, they, they pronounce David, am I right? They pre- pronounce it Surya? Yeah, Surya. And so um it's it's completely unrelated. The the name Assyrian in, in Assyrian would be Ash Ashir. Uh their their chief god is Ashur, and they are the worshipers of Ashur then. Uh, so the Arameans. Uh Ritzin of Damascus is, is a king that shows up in Isaiah seven. He paid tribute to Tiglath of the Third. His contemporary in the Northern Kingdom Pekka, most people don't know that people in the Old Testament actually did have family names. Are you aware of this? His family name was Wood. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But I got the response I wanted. I wanted a good response and I got it. That's all right. Betty, you're not dissuading me in the least. I will do it again just to get that guy of response. So, <laughs> uh, but these, these guys, uh, let me go back to the previous. Hazael is a king, 2 Kings chapter 10, who is anti-Assyrian. And um, uh, these two fellows are also anti-Assyrian. They're trying to force the king of Jerusalem in the days of... Um, of um, Isaiah to enter an anti Assyrian coalition to fight the Assyrians, uh, but uh, the king of Assyria, of, of Israel, of Judah, that time is at Ahaz, who is, who is pro Assyrian, and we'll see uh, things about that as we go. Um, so, this Isaiah 7 is talking about the Syro Ephraimite uh, coalition. Syro, that is the Arameans, and Ephraim is the northern kingdom, so uh, Pekah, King Pekah of uh, Samaria, is in this um, coalition as well. Then finally, Egypt. Uh, I, uh, crucial passages mentioned in Isaiah, Isaiah 19 and 20, Isaiah 30, 31, 36. That Egypt shows up. One of the reasons, notice here in 36, uh, one of the reasons it's important is that Syria, Egypt was in a great decline politically, militarily, uh, in the days of uh, most of the Old Testament, later, especially after the monarchy begins. Uh, but they were kind of a second tier. Israel would be a, a third tier nation, if you will. So the, the top tier would be Assyria. Middle would be Egypt. Way down the list is, is Judah. Okay. So if Judah's in trouble with Assyria, they go to Egypt for help. And uh, the representative of the Assyrian king in Isaiah 36 says, what are you doing trusting in Egypt? Uh, Egypt is like a broken reed. You lean on it, but it will, it will pierce your hand and disable you. Uh, so Egypt is is significant. So I have here 2 Kings 18. Then the royal spokesman said to them, and this is what I was just saying, uh, uh, now, look, this is, this is in Isaiah 36. It's also in 2 Kings 18. We won't, we, uh, we're not talking about the authorship of kings. We're not really dealing with kings right now, so I won't go into that. But almost certainly, uh, the book of Kings is authored by a series of prophets. And this is one of the evidences of it. But look here in the red. Now, look, you are relying on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, that will pierce the hand of anyone who grabs it and leans on it this is what Pharaoh king of Egypt is to all those who rely on him and then again down here how can you rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen if they should supply you chariots and horsemen who would you you put on the horses They're, they're a useless resource but Israel was always going back to Egypt trying to get help are you with me here so, what, Jan? I was just thinking, that's what they, in the desert, they were complaining, let's go back to yeah, Egypt. Yeah, let's go back to Egypt. Okay. Yeah. a good question. When David uh, ordered Joab to number the Jews, mm-hmm. it was like 1.2 or 1.5. <coughs> yeah. How would that, <coughs> under David, how would that have compared with the army of Assyrian? Um There would be no comparison. Um Assyria was kind of in a weak period. The the amazing thing is, uh, our our friend that we went to visit in Knoxville, uh, was it last Sunday that we got home, or Saturday that we got home, uh, described God as the divine weaver. And it's it's marvelous uh, to just try to think about that, how God weaves things together in history. The the three great powers of the ancient Near East uh, in David's time would have been Uh, Babylon, Assyria, and Egypt. All of them were in decline, leaving David open to uh, establish a a rather, for his day, far-flung empire. So um, uh, David's uh, army would have far outnumbered. But at this time that you're talking about, at Isaiah's time. In Isaiah's time, Israel is is far reduced, and we'll see that as we go. I get that, but what size is the Assyria? I have no idea. Uh, you can't you can't always trust n- numbers in um, Mesopotamian writings because uh, we had ten people and they had a hundred million and, I, and we I stepped in and turned the whole battle single handedly on my back you know uh, they they do crazy things with numbers and we're going to look at the series of kings quickly from Solomon to Hezekiah but in Chronicles again. Chronicles is kind of untrodden territory for a lot of us. If you read through the Bible in a year, you've read Chronicles, but um, it's not necessarily a book that you've spent a lot of time with. But over time, you begin to pick up certain themes. And I noticed this, but I also found this in William Dumbrell's work. The great kings in Chronicles have five things true about them. First, they enjoyed the blessing of the Lord, but it showed in five ways. They won great victories for Israel. Second, they built on a grand scale. Every great king builds on a grand scale. So you're going to watch for these things in a king's life, and you'll know he's enjoying the blessing of God. Third, they focused their attention on the temple. In the ancient Near East, a king is a patron of a temple and all temples. Um, He either builds temples for for the deity or he refurbishes temples for the deity. All great kings do this. So you have Joash and you have Hezekiah and you have Josiah. Are you with me here? Um, Fourth, they worship lavishly. Uh, Just read the account of the sacrifices given by Solomon at the dedication of the temple. They worship lavishly. Uh, And fifth, they enjoyed the fear and respect of the nations around him. And that's what we'll read at the end of the story of Hezekiah. If you read 2 Chronicles, all the nations uh, around him feared him. Uh, So this is the blessing of God. So as you're watching for the good kings, you know these fine things are going to be true. Um, By the ninth century, the kings had fallen substantially from the model. But we're going into the 8th century. And so in this period, there are three kings who start well. And we're going to summarize this now and then go back and talk briefly about each one of them. Three kings who start well but finish badly. Then three kings who contrast with one another. Then F, three kings who show the value of repentance. And finally, we won't go here. Finally, four kings, exile and restoration. The kings of Isaiah's lifetime are four. Uh, they're named at the beginning of the book. If you look in Isaiah one, 1 you have Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Um, three of them are kings who start well but, but finish badly. Uh, First is Joash, who renovated the temple. This is not one that we're dealing with in the background of Isaiah, so I pass it by quickly. He renovated the temple but murdered a prophet. Uh, Then Amaziah, uh, who trusted God against overwhelming enemy, but then he engaged in Edomite idolatry. He faced an Ethiopian army that the text says had a million men, and he cried out to God, and God gave him victory over this massive army. Then he had to face the Edomites, who had a tiny army, and he was terrified. <laughs> and uh, uh, then after he was defeated, he set up the idolatry uh, for the, I- the Edomite god in, in Israel, in Judah. And, and this is Amaziah, who's actually a fairly good king. And then third is Uzziah. He is also called, this is in Chronicles, he's called Uzziah. In um, uh, Kings, he's called Azariah. And it gets a little confusing to us, yes? <laughs> um, just read, um, Brother Karamazov, who wrote that? Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky. When I left it, it, it Russia, I was leaving the people that we stayed with. I wanted to say goodbye in Russian, so I said Dostoevsky. <laughs> Dumb America. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I can't believe I said that. <laughs> it's supposed to be Dostoevsky. <laughs> uh, uh, but in, uh, if you read any Russian literature, the, the, the names just go all over the place with nicknames. and I, 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 have a, I have to have a scorecard to keep up with these guys. But uh, Uzziah in Chronicles, Azariah in um, Kings. He's a great king approaching the model. But he violated the holy, so he went into the, into the temple to burn incense. In the temple, God struck him with uh, leprosy. All kings refers to about him as he's a good king, but God struck him with leprosy. Chronicles tells the story. Um, then I come to, uh, here is kind of the, the overall thing. We're going to look now at, um, well, we've just looked at Uzziah. Well, here is Uzziah, 2 Kings 15, 1 uh, to 7, and 2 King Chronicles 26. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. He reigned 52 years. He did right, won great victories, built widely. He was an inventor is possible there. I don't know for sure what to say about that. His fame spread far and wide, for he was greatly helped, the text says until he became powerful and he became arrogant and um, infringed on the role of the, of the priesthood that God had restricted for the people of Levi, and so he is stricken with leprosy. And finally, he dies in, in ni- 739 BC and plays no role in the book. Uh, he's only mentioned once, Isaiah 7:1, in, in the year that King Uzziah died, I was in the temple. When I was a boy, I heard people, people preach on this. And they said, well, it was because of the death of this godly king, Uzziah, that he was in the temple. He was mourning the death. Folks, in the year that John F. Kennedy died, I was in ninth grade. I was in ninth grade because John F. Kennedy died that year. Amen? <laughs> Are you with me here? Well, no. <laughs> so so uh, what's the point? Well, it's simply a, a, a synchronism. And I now know when it was 739 B.C. when uh, Isaiah was in the uh, temple, uh, in Isaiah 6.1. Then we follow with three contrasting kings. One, Jotham, uh, who again plays no role in Isaiah. Uh, He ordered his ways before the Lord, we read in the scriptures. Second, Ahaz. (laughs) Ahaz. Uh, who walked in the ways of the kings of Israel? By that, he's talking that, that this characterization is referring to the worship of Baal and Asherah and Ashtaroth and all that nonsense, the Canaanite religious history. Ahaz bought into all of it. He took the, the altar of the temple away, and moved it away to the side. Found an altar in Damascus that had been built on the on the model uh, that was uh, required by Nebuchadnezzar. He sent back the plans for the altar, had it built, and placed in front of the temple. We're going to make our sacrifices there, and then we'll go see. We'll go uh, inquire of the Lord at the other temple, at the other altar. Uh, It's incredible. How can you think in these terms? And then third, Hezekiah, uh, who is the new David. In a way, what David does, Hezekiah does. So David organized the priesthood. There were so many priests in the days of David that they couldn't all come to the temple and and function regularly. So what he did was break it up into 24 courses, and you would come, um, uh, each group would come one week in six months and work. But then there were the three pilgrim festivals Passover, Feast of in gathering, or Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles. And then all of the priests would come at those times because there were lots and lots of people coming making sacrifices. David organized the worship. He organized the temple. So does Hezekiah. Uh, he restores the tithe for the Levites and all the things that are, that are involved with all of this. He's the new David. He conquers. He builds. Uh, he restores the temple after the days of Hezekiah of Ahaz, it needed desperately restoration. So this is Hezekiah. Next we move to Jotham. Um, I, this is out of order. Why Why is it out of order? Didn't he finish badly at the end of... Um, well, we'll talk about that when we get to 38 and 39 of Isaiah. Uh, yeah, he, he failed some ways, but then res- repented. And so there, there's... He's still a very fine man. Um, there are king, so uh, Jotham ordered his way before the Lord. He did right. He was a builder. He was a warrior, but again, he plays no role in the land in the uh, story. Then is Hez- Ahaz. I, I'm sorry, Hezekiah is out of order. I, I thought I had gotten that all worked out. I can't tell you how many times I've looked at this and it still got it wrong, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Ahaz dates are from 735 to 715 B.C. Uh, you see where he's mentioned 14 times in the book of Isaiah. He's a foil for for Hezekiah. Now, for most of you, that's, that's fairly clear terminology, but what Ahaz is, Hezekiah isn't. What Hezekiah is, Ahaz isn't. So I highlight the differences by seeing Ahaz and Hezekiah held up. Ahaz does not, in fact, refuses to trust the Lord on political grounds. And Hezekiah does hardly anything but trust the Lord. Are you with me here in, in the book of Isaiah? He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He was pro-Assyrian. Uh, he feared Tiglathpileser more than God. And he faced the Syro-Ephraimite uh, coalition that we mentioned earlier. Uh, once again, the threat from the Assyrian Empire. Uh, these are the... Um, Um, I can't think of the word, provinces of the Assyrians in the 8th century uh, in western Asia Minor or or western uh, Near East. So here is all of this, by the way, all of this in green is Assyrian. This is all Israel is. And Judah at one point finally is reduced to hardly anything but the city of Jerusalem itself. We'll talk about that in Isaiah 7 and 8. Um, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came to him, but he gave him trouble. That is to Ahaz. Ahaz appealed to Tiglath-Pileser to help him against his enemies, not God. And um, Congress giveth, Congress taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Congress. Amen. (laughs) Brother? Yeah, Anybody who's been in the military. <laughs> uh, the point is that if you ask for help, it comes with strings. Uh, gave, he gave him help uh, trouble instead of help. Ahaz took some of the things from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and from the officials and presented them to the king of Assyria, but that did not help him. In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him for he thought since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped them I will sacrifice to them so they will help me. But they were his downfall and the downfall of all Israel. He has gathered together the furnishings of the temple of God and cut them in pieces. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods and aroused the, aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of his ancestors. It's just, it, it's inconceivable uh, after the time of uh, Uzziah and Jotham that he should do this. Um, how quickly a people group can decline. But no evil lasts forever. So, um, Verse 27, Ahaz rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of Jerusalem. But he was not placed in the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him as king. So God, in mercy to his people, gave them King Hezekiah as a new king. And here we're down here with Hezekiah now and ready to talk about him. He's the new David. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He, he's mentioned by name 32 times in Isaiah. Um, Jotham is not mentioned except in Isaiah 1 1. Um, Uzziah is mentioned only twice 1 1 and 6 1. And I think 7 1. But um, um, Hezekiah is mentioned 32 times. Um, 129 times in the Old Testament. So one in every four references to Hezekiah is in the book of Isaiah. Um, 2 Kings 18, Second Chronicles 29-32. to 32. Notice how much longer the account of Hezekiah's reign is in Chronicles. So if you want to know more about Hezekiah, it's in Chronicles that you will read. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. Wow. Is he including David. Um, apparently. Wow. He's having to trust in ways that David never had to trust. Saul was, was not a horrible king. He was, frankly, quite effective administrator for most of his reign. But he, but he failed in, in trusting God. He, trailed, he, he failed in the role of being a servant of the Lord. Hezekiah is coming on after, his, after Ahaz. And so he's, he's remarkable. And by the way, a similar statement is made about Josiah later. What does not he say? Passover was never celebrated. Yeah. With Josiah. Uh-huh. And that's the point. Hezekiah's greatness is in trusting the Lord. Josiah's is in keeping the Passover. Uh, even apparently, even David didn't fulfill the Passover the way that Josiah did. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. I, that would be a great epitaph for any of us. Uh, he removed idolatry from, Isa- from Judah. And after the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom. He went up there and destroyed the uh, idolatrous um, uh, worship centers in the northern kingdom. He repaired the temple, restored the priests and Levites. He kept the Passover. He led in trusting the Lord against Assyria. So when you get to that passage in Isaiah or in 2 Kings, um, uh, don't let Hezekiah uh, 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 mislead you saying, Trust the Lord. Do you think my my master, the the representative of Nebuchadnezzar says, do you think my master is coming here without the hand of the Lord? Whose altars has Hezekiah been destroying? Are you with me here? And yet Hezekiah leads in trusting against this kind of opposition. He's a remarkable man in a lot of ways. (sighs) Like every other remarkable person in history with feet of clay. Okay? Uh... So this was part of the uh, preparation that he made in Jerusalem David, you were in Israel just recently weren't you? oh, I thought you I thought I saw this david was say again yeah david gradu- was it last spring he graduated from the seminary and uh um, uh is going he's he's from he's he's a farsi speaker who's going into uh Jewish evangelism. evangelism grew up in iran <laughs> so you can pray for David Zarephan if you want to. <laughs> but uh, when when uh, Nebuchadnezzar was coming, they built this wall in Jerusalem. It's called the Broad Wall, it's 20 some feet wide. Um, and it's been uncovered in Jerusalem. So, going to one of the shopping centers in Jerusalem, there's this wall down there. And you see this just here? That's the wall of a house. So, eminent domain. Is <laughs> <Does> that work? To <laughs> Fred. No, it's on the west. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Should we send a picture of that wall to President Trump? It didn't help. They had had a better wall than than the broad wall. They had the Lord. And so this we've seen in recent days um, the path of Hezekiah's tunnel. This was another arrangement that Hezekiah made for the siege. Here is the Gihon Spring over here. And they brought the the um, tunnel around to the pool of Siloam. Here is another picture that that kind of helps you see some of the engineering that had to be had to be carried out. Here is the land above, all cut away to show at least part of the course of, of the of the tunnel that Hezekiah had dug uh, it's only mentioned briefly in second chronicles, but it 's a an interesting thing um that was important, but I'm not sure why. So we'll move on. <laughs> uh, uh, briefly, yeah. E- briefly, just to finish the story, um, uh, there are three kings who show the value of repentance: Manasseh, Ammon, and Josiah, and then four kings that lead to uh, um, uh, to exile and destruction, and ultimately in Second Chronicles to restoration. Um, uh, Manasseh. Manasseh, in Second Kings, has only bad recorded about him. He was a wicked king, filled the city of Jerusalem with innocent blood. Chronicles brings in another element of it. So bad was this king, he becomes a foreshadowing of the, of the future of Judah. He is taken captive by the, by the Babylonians. I'm sorry, the, you see his dates here. By the Assyrians. He is taken captive by the Assyrians off to Mesopotamia. There he repents and the Lord restores him. Uh, this is, hope for us. Yeah, there's hope for us. There's also hope for Israel. See, again, Chronicles is written probably end of the 5th century B.C. And this is to the, the people who have returned from Babylonian exile. But only a very few have come. Most people stayed in exile and there's a small community. The, the temple they were able to build was pitiful in their own eyes. The city has not even been rebuilt at the end of the 5th century. There's no major building activity in Jerusalem until the second, 3rd century B.C. So it's a good 200 more years before, 150 more years. So the thing is, everything is just pitiful. It's just awful. And is there hope? And And if there's hope for Manasseh, there's hope for exiled Israel and then Ammon follows Manasseh who repented of his father's repentance he um, Hezekiah I'm sorry Manasseh um, established idolatry then repented and came back and tried to turn the nation back Ammon didn't want to go that direction by the way you should read Ezekiel 18 in relation to this period. Ezekiel is an exilic prophet, so he's contemporary with the time of the uh, the 6th century um, and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. But Ezekiel 18 talks about repentance under the law, and what does it mean? Because you can repent from sin, but you can also repent from righteousness. And Ammon is kind of the test case of that. It's in this period, 609 B.C., that uh, uh, Babylon begins to rise to prominence. And then you get Josiah, 640 to 609. Josiah actually dies trying to prevent the, uh, the victory of the Babylonians over the Assyrians. Um, but he's, he's a, a marvelously good king who's kind of the calm before the storm. Uh, from him, it's a quick rundown Jehoahaz, who reigned only briefly, because you see his son, Jehoiakim, reigns um, uh, from uh, 609 to 597. He's actually taken captive by the Egyptians and is taken back to Egypt. Jehoiakim uh, reigns 609 to 597. The first exile from Jerusalem is in 605. And by the way, the first return is in 536. Um, Jehoiakim, his son, reigns only in 597. He only reigns, I think it's three weeks or three months, when he's taken captive by the Babylonians off into exile in 597, uh, and the second return from Babylonian captivity is in 456. Um, Then Zedekiah who is these guys' uncle, um, comes to the throne, 597 to 586. I have, I have kind of a, a theory about him. I, I haven't tried to work it out whether it's true or not. He appears to be, in my mind, as I read Kings and Chronicles, He appears, and indeed Jeremiah, he, he appears to be a man who really wanted to follow the Lord but didn't have the spine to do it. Uh, so when he would talk to one of the prophets... Jeremiah. Oh, this is what we need to do. And then he'd go face his counselors and back off. I think he was just uh, spiritually spineless. And so Zedekiah, uh, technically, the last proper king of Jerusalem, of, Ju- of Judah, is Jehoiakim. So, in the end of 2 uh, Kings and in the end of 2 Chronicles, both sets of books end with. Jehoiakim being released from captivity and and given a table at the the Babylonian king's... I'm sorry, given a seat at the Babylonian king's uh, table. So he's being honored among the kings who are subject to the Babylonians. Uh, Zedekiah is just kind of absent. He's, in his final days, he's captured by the Babylonians as they're breaking into the walls of Jerusalem. He's taken before the king... All of his sons are brought before him. They're slaughtered before his eyes. Then he is blinded and led away in chains to Babylon, a, a, a very tragic man who might have turned out substantially different if he had simply trusted the Lord. So this is kind of the background of what we're going to be talking about in Isaiah. Uh, next week, we'll start with uh, another, another one of these preparatory studies, and it's on what is a prophet, precisely? Uh, so if we're going to look at isaiah we have to know what prophecy is how to how to think about it and so we'll start with that let's close with prayer father you are the divine weaver Uh, we have lived many of us long enough to see you weaving things together things that we could not imagine things that we could not dream of weaving things together and putting us in the right place to meet So that all the strands of your, of your embroidery meet and bring beauty out of what we thought was chaos. So here we've watched it. Uh, the very message of Isaiah that we, are, we have now been anticipating has been worked out in the life of Israel. But that's only part of the plan that you have for Israel. You have so much more planned for them. If you have brought them this far along... In your plan, will you not also bring them on further? And if they can have hope before you, then, Father, how much more can we have hope for before you? We whom you have redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, whom, in whom you have taken up your residence and you've made us individually and corporately your temple. These things were never true about Israel, and you have given us these great privileges. Then, Father... Remind us that when things seem hopeless, as in the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem under Hezekiah, when things seem hopeless, it's time to look up, it's time to take heart, it's time to act valiantly. So give us this kind of faith as we pursue our studies. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen.